Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is Dr. Philip Zimbardo, who many of you know from the Stanford Prison Experiment, which received an immense amount of publicity in 1971, and also scrutiny uh, more recently. He is the author of numerous peer-reviewed articles and of the books, The Lucifer Effect, The Time Paradox, and The Time Cure. He is also the founder and director of the Heroic Imagination Project. This is part one of our two-part podcast with Dr. Zimbardo. So how, uh, how was your trip? Uh, my trip to Italy was wonderful, except it was the start of a heat wave there in Sicily and also in Florence, which has continued since then. And it just made it unpleasant because no, nobody even has fans, let alone air conditioning. But we got to see a number of colleagues that was, that was important. Yeah, I was in uh, London, and uh, it was... Um the, the peak of the heat wave. So it was 104 in London, and I was star- staying in an Airbnb, which uh, also had no uh, air conditioning. Well, at least temperatures cooled down a little bit this week. Uh, but it's, it's the climate change. It's here to stay. It's unpredictable. All we know is everything will be extreme, extreme flooding, extreme temperature, extreme ice, uh, and extreme uh, drought. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, uh, reality. As much as a subset of people would like to deny that truth, but um, you know, it's always f- sort of fascinating how there are always deniers regarding what the cause is. It's like it's like the flat earthers, right? Right. <laughs> that even in the face of incontrovertible fact, uh, they still hold on uh, to this belief. Yeah, because they say, as far as I can see, it's flat. I look, I look in every direction, it's flat, it's flat. So. Well, you know, it's sort of interesting, right? It's uh, how somehow also we have elevated public dialogue such that you have a qualified expert and then you have somebody who has an opinion and they're equivalent and we put them on the same platform I think that's uh, actually part of the problem. So, uh, mm-hmm. and I don't know how to get a- around that. I, maybe uh, that's an interesting place to sort of <laughs> explore a little bit. But, and I'm sure you're familiar with the Dunning Kruger effect. How do you deal with people who demonstrate such sort of far off views from demonstrable fact and reality? Well, the the enemy of truth is really the media because that is exactly what they want on most programs. Somebody taking an extreme position, which is against all of current knowledge, and they bring the expert together with this hothead uh, for, for debate. You know, that increases viewer attention. And it's, it's just bad because Sometimes the hothead has an appealing style or looks good, 
and will automatically begin to get followers. And then you have followers of some crazy idea that then begins to get spread. They put it on their Facebook pages and they say, I believe in, you know, Joe Doe. And so, but it's the media always wants. I suppose controversy. Yeah, they want controversy and they want participants who will stir up things for the audience. Yeah, no, I guess it's it's sort of, uh, that's what uh, gets our attention, right? I mean, this is in some ways the difference between negativity and positivity. We're, we're sort of evolved to have negative things stick to us and uh, because that theoretically potentially threatens us and therefore it uh, allows us to be aware of this threat versus positivity isn't as, um, well, doesn't cause threat whatsoever. Right. Through evolution, we're set to notice a negative, which, which is a danger signal. In the extreme, it's a danger signal to survival. But it's just, it's just something that gets our attention and holds it. And positive things are nice, but simply nice to consume rather than to uh, focus on as potential threats to our existence. It's interesting. I uh, ended up meeting somebody who was involved with this um, Housewives of Beverly Hills or this this series, and they were saying that mm-hmm. so much of it is completely artifice. It's it's simply they bring people together and they create narratives, which in some way are basically scripted to create controversy, anger, uh, to increase viewership. And this is, of course, what the media does in terms of news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't. I have not had a chance to see any of them. But each you're, week, you're, you're very lucky. No, no, I've, I've been curious because um, I have a friend who's in Dubai, and last week there was Housewives of Dubai. That's one that, that gets past Beverly Hills or, or you know, New York. So Housewives in Dubai is. Should be worth watching. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if I agree with that, but again, I'm sure that it will. Because the other thing people are attracted to is this idea of a luxurious lifestyle. And if I have this luxurious lifestyle, if I have money, you know, everything will work out and I'll be happy. And on the some on the some level, that's the reason they watch it. But the other side of it, of course, is you know, there's controversy, there's meanness, there's unkindness. And it, it's sort of an interesting paradox because it demonstrates that having all of that actually doesn't make your life better whatsoever. Right. Well, and in fact, it usually reduces the number of friends you have uh, because if you really have that, you're always suspicious of people wanting to, wanting to get their share of, of your goodies. Yeah, it's it's really a shame. <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure how we immediately devolved to Housewives of Dubai and Beverly Hills, but I I think it's a, a sort of a truism about human behavior. But on that note, actually, it's sort of interesting. Obviously, and I know you've been involved with a number of wonderful causes, but one of those is the Heroic Imagination Project. Myself with Seek Care, but one of the things that fascinates me on some level is how since you're, you know, doing charitable work and, um, which is good work and helps people, 
how incredibly difficult it is, at least for me, to raise money for what nominally is creating good in the world, yet some of the people who we look at who have extreme wealth, instead of having a view of the world and having gratitude and being generous, actually, they look at the world through the lens of scarcity. Can you explain that? No, I wish I could. It's it's very upsetting. Um, uh, there are people we both know who are multimillionaires or billionaires, and each year my Heroic Imagination Project has a fundraiser, and we ask for you know some some of these people a thousand dollars, you know that's that's not even their cigarette money, and and they say sorry we have already donated. Well, if you're that rich, you you really have to donate a fair amount of your income to get out of the the highest tax bracket, and you you just hope well maybe they have a better nonprofit than the the hip nonprofit but they never they never really say next year i will put you first on my list and, and these are people that i've known for a long time that uh, i send i send regular reports of the research we are doing the conferences we are having and i should mention that uh, in march of this coming year of next year when I am 90 years old, the Heroic Imagination Project is going to have a big event in San Francisco, a hero roundtable where we have over 100 speakers for several days. Uh, and of course, to do that, we need lots of money to rent a theater, uh, to bring in speakers from all over the world, uh, to give them, put them up in hotels, give them meals. Uh, and so we are starting fundraising now for next March. And a number of people that should be able to give money are already opting out to say, well, I'll see, I'll get back to you. Um, and I'll say, you know, I keep saying, well, can't, can't you make a commitment now to give something and then you, I'll get back to you about uh, how They're much. very smart in that they will never do that in my limited experience. Well, and this isn't sort of our own selfishness about our project. I've had conversations with many of these people and say, look, whether you contribute to me or not, find something you're passionate about and give and give a significant amount. But uh, for many of these people, it, it hits deaf ears, unfortunately. And in some ways, I feel sad for them because... As you know, giving to others is what creates sort of the physiologic changes in your brain that stimulate, you know, the reward or pleasure centers that impact your physiology in a very positive way. And the fact that they create these internal narratives is extraordinarily sad, I think, uh, because when you give to others, uh, you know, it has a huge positive impact on yourself. And... Uh, you know, it is what it is. But maybe what you can do uh, while you're here is share with our listeners uh, uh, the information about the Heroic Imagination Project and tell us a little bit about that, the event that's upcoming, and uh, what you hope to accomplish uh, from that. So the Heroic Imagination Project, the acronym is HIP, H-I-P, is a nonprofit in California 
that I started back in 2010, and we have grown gradually to have centers now around the world in 12 different countries uh, and throughout the United States. And our model is very simple. It's, it's an academic model. That is, give people the background to help them become heroes when an opportunity arises. So simply put, a hero is someone who comes to the aid of someone else in need. And in a funny way, it could be by giving money, but typically it's helping somebody who's been in an accident, who's fallen down, who's sit by a car, who, who, who has some uh, sudden medical problem that they need to be taken to the hospital. And it's also someone who donates to various causes, let's say uh, some children's causes that they know, in fact, they don't just give money, they, they actually can go to a hospital, a children's hospital, and see the impact of their money, of whether, even $1,000 or more. And of course, we have a website that and anybody who donates, we, we put on the website for other people to see. And we're doing research now and developing all new, newer programs. So we have now a hip hero club for high school students that they sign up as a club that high school students have to be in a certain number of activities, after school activities. So we have a young student named Zoe Hummel who put this together with my help. And essentially it's, it's lessons on, on caring and sharing and climate change and it's fully detailed lessons. Then people who sign in can debate with one another. I mean, high school students. Uh, and it's supervised by this young woman who's 17 years old, Zoe Hummel. So that's a new thing. But uh, we also are still doing research around the world on different topics of why people give money, interviews. Uh, why people do not give money to, to not only to us to other events. We have something called a hero round table that we have a couple of times a year. The hero round table was started by Matt Langdon, who's Australian, who's now the president of HIP. I'm the honorary president. And he's creating a two day meeting in October in Michigan. It's actually October 28th and 29th. And we bring in people from our team. We have members in seven different countries. And then each of them tries to bring in students, faculty, colleagues to attend. And we have a speaker series. Speakers only speak 10 minutes on different topics. And the good news is we fly in at our expense people who are running our programs uh, in, in Portugal, uh, in uh, Poland, in Germany, uh, other places, Holland, you know, for the two-day meeting. So in addition to giving lectures, then we meet with subgroups afterwards to talk about the lecture. We always invite for free a number of local college students. So that's going to be in Michigan, October 28th, 29th. And then the, the event I'm excited about is 
at the end of March, I will be 90 years old, nine zero. I can't believe it. <laughs> and we're going to have a big hero roundtable in San Francisco. We haven't set the date yet, but it'll be <clears throat> somewhere between the 15th and the 23rd. And they they were going to rent a big theater, have many, many speakers. Also, we invite uh, people who have been, who've done heroic deeds. Uh, some are famous, some some are not as media famous. Uh, and and the, it's a whole two days, maybe 15 speakers a day. And the message is to inspire youth to step up to the plate and take heroic action when when needed, when called for. And then we follow through with those students uh, for another year to see, you know, has <clears throat> has this meeting have an impact on their behavior? It's interesting. Uh, as you know, you were kind enough to ask me to speak a few years ago with Emiliana Simon Thomas, and it was a, a wonderful uh, event. Maybe you can uh, sort of offer an explanation or insights into events that occur where somebody's in danger, put at risk, and why there's a subset of people who just stand around and watch versus the one or small number of individuals who happen to engage. Why is that? John Darley and Bib Latinay were the two social psychologists 20 years ago or more who invented the term the bystander effect. And the bystander effect simply means when there is an emergent situation where someone is harmed or hurt, People immediately are attracted to it, gather around it, but they are bystanders and not upstanders. They look, but typically they do nothing. And again, the notion is, as you, each person looks around to see who's going to help and no one helps, it creates a kind of psychological freezing. You freeze in place. But then if someone steps forward to help, and it might just mean bending down and picking up the person's head from the ground, asking how they're feeling, or call 911, um, you know, call emergency. But it's taking action in an emergent, emergent situation, emergent, it's not something you plan, you're on the, your way to a theater, you're on your way to go shopping, and that suddenly this, this event happens which stops you in your place. For some people, it doesn't stop them. They look and say, oh, it's too bad, and they go on. So part of what our Heroic Imagination Project does is we create these scenarios, we make videos, and we show them in high schools. And then we have the kids in the class talk about what was happening, what would you do, what could you do, and then always the question is, suppose it was you on the ground and you're lying there and you're aware of people talking around you, but no one is helping. How does that make you feel? And the answer is obviously terrible because, you know, if I'm bleeding, I could bleed to death before somebody helps me up. Somebody gives me artificial respiration. And most importantly, somebody calls emergency 911. Well, I, just to emphasize just a couple points, when you were first talking about HIP, uh, you were talking about donations, but 
I think it's it's in some ways it's not just donations of money, it's donating yourself to this cause because seeing somebody in need isn't about necessarily donating money. It's wonderful to support projects that have the effect of helping people, but also about what you can do because so many people, you mentioned the bystander effect, but so many people actually feel they lack agency. And I think that's part of the problem is that they'll say, well, I don't have power, I don't have position, I don't have knowledge, whatever it is. And they use that to sort of say, I can't really help. And in fact, uh, of course, anyone can help. And, and it's not just even in the case of an emergency, if you will. In life, if you walk around and just look at others, there's so many opportunities. It doesn't have to be a life and death situation to simply offer help uh, to somebody just out of kindness. And I think that's also an important message. Yeah, you're right. It's it's offering help to someone <clears throat> who could use your help. Sometimes they will ask for it. I mean, it could be as simple as reaching up on a high shelf in a safe way to get a product somebody asks, some smaller person. Uh, or somebody spills their groceries and then bending down to pick it up. And you're going to take a few minutes to help put the groceries back in the bag. So the main principle is to think of yourself in more sociocentric ways and not always on your egocentric path through life. So there are times you have to stop, look, understand what's happening, and then make a decision. Can I help in some way or not? And as I said, some way could be to call help, just yell out help, Sometimes it's call 911, but sometimes it's simply to bend down and say, are you okay? Somebody's down on the ground and you want to know, you know, are they okay? Can they talk at, le at least? The enemy of sociocentrism, as you know, is egocentrism. It's me rather than we. And so again, the Hero Heroic Imagination Project is try trying to say it's really critical for all of us to adopt that sociocentric view because you have to imagine someday, somewhere, someplace, it could be you on the ground. And then wouldn't you like people to come over to you and say, how can I help you? First, do you need help? And then how can I help you? No, I think that's really important. In some ways, you know, what you're talking about is, uh, at least in regard to if you want to call it suffering, is the nature of compassion. Having an open heart, seeing the other as yourself, and making that effort uh, to be of service. And what I think a lot of people forget is that as a species, uh, what allows us to physiologically function at our best is actually not the egocentric uh, view of the world, uh, in fact, that creates a lot of stress, anxiety, and unhappiness, but a outward view of, of uh, the world and how we can be of service. And I would say that that is what makes a life that gives purpose to life and ultimately happiness. I mean, the problem is, for some people, their vision is straight and narrow. I'm, I'm going from my home to school, I'm going from my home to work. 
and I do this every day, and every day is fine. And now something interrupts that path. It's almost as if somebody put a roadblock up. And now I have to figure out how do I get around that roadblock to get to my object of school or home or work. But now what happens when that roadblock is a person on the ground in front of you? And it should be now a no-brainer that you stop, you ask if they need help, you, you give help if they can, certainly almost always raising their head from the ground. You could do artificial respiration if you know how to do it. That's something we, we, we encourage everyone to know. And then you call. You have a cell phone. You call 911, and they'll be there in a very short time. And the key is not to get entrapped in the social psychology of doing nothing. That if you look around and the group is going to do nothing because they're not sure what to do. Now, the other thing I've done is I've made videos uh, of bystander intersection um, in London. And we, we, we show these in schools. But essentially, it's we have a flight of stairs coming down from Liverpool Station, as you know, one of the busiest train stations in, in London. And we put various people... Uh, looking as if they're actors and actresses in distress. And we have, we have them well-dressed and poorly dressed. And then we videotape who helps or who doesn't help. And what's curious is, if it's a well-dressed man, more people come more quickly than anything else, even if it's a well-dressed woman. Uh, we don't understand why we're trying to follow that up. But even so, we interview people who pass by and we say, didn't you see the person lying on the steps? And they say, yeah, why didn't you ask if they need help? Well, I was in a hurry. I'm on my way to such and such and such. And then we always make it a lesson. Suppose that was you. Would you want somebody to stop on their journey to somewhere else to ask you if you needed help? Uh, and... So we use it as a training device. We have these these videos available that we distribute to schools and uh, even in military uh, organizations. And we've got feedback that they are very helpful. I mean, they go they go beyond talking about it to showing people in a live situation. I'm sure you're aware of this project that was done with the seminarians who had just uh, learned a lesson about. Uh, the story of the Good Samaritan, and then they were supposed to be at some event in a very short period of time. And on the the, um, path to the uh, location of that event, they stationed an individual who had fallen down or appeared to have fallen down and was suffering, if you will. And it was sort of interesting, and you alluded to this in what you were saying earlier, which is the individuals who uh, were not told that they were going to be late and had to rush, the vast majority of them stopped. And in some ways, probably because the story of the Good Samaritan was on their mind versus the group who were told that they were going to be late and they had to rush. As you pointed out, the, the people said, well, I had to be somewhere. And that took the uh, sort of the idea of being of service to others 
into one that I need to be somewhere, therefore I don't have time to help other people. Right. Oh, yeah. It's a wonderful study. Yeah, I mean, It's nicely including all the elements so that you have seminary students who are trained to help, trained to be like Jesus. And then in their mind is they're going to be giving a talk about helping. And then here's a chance to help. So you assume everybody stops. No, everybody doesn't stop, even in that situation. And it's when you're in a hurry to get somewhere, then that is the object, that is your total focus. And you might even be colorblind to things on, on this, in your periphery. You don't notice somebody lying down. You don't notice somebody on a park bench slumped over. It's like your mind chooses to narrow down your vision to say, you are going from A to B. And I, I, don't want to, I don't want you to be stopping anywhere else or you're going to be late. Uh, you're going to be, get in trouble. You know, it would really be good to that, do that study with students, high school students, junior high school students, you know, and they're on their way to school. And then you arrange for having, the simplest one would be to have a, a park bench and another student is slumped over. Do they help? Uh, and then the, we could vary it. You could have a, a solo student going or a, a student, a pair of students uh, where one of them might be able to influence the other one. Let's, let's see if we can help. Yeah. So I, I don't know if this study's ever been done. I don't think so, but I would, no. I would, I would like to propose it. Yeah, actually. And that, that would be a, a, a fairly inexpensive study, right? Oh yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> this reminds me of the situation. I'm sure you've probably been on airplanes where somebody needs medical help. Well, Obviously, as a doctor, I've been on that airplane, <laughs> and I, uh, this may sound horrible, but as you know, I'm a neurosurgeon, so when they ask, are, are there any doctors on board, I pause for a minute, hopefully, so that a internal medicine doctor or some other doctor will go up, and then, of course, when that doesn't happen, I go up and do uh, uh, the best I can, but uh, it is sort of, a, uh, it's not not wanting to help, it's there's probably somebody there who has more appropriate expertise than I at that moment. Yeah. Well, it's even worse for me because sometimes, you know, on my ticket will say Dr. Zimbardo and they couldn't say, could Dr. Zimbardo, could you help? (laughs) I'm not a real doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com.